and welcome to another episode of Through Another Lens, our football pop culture podcast. I'm your host Shubhi Arun, and today I'm joined by Simon Waldman, who is an editor at BBC News for nearly three decades. Uh, and today we're going to be discussing the Gary Lineker saga, the match of the day standoff, and some of the wider implications of what happened. We're not going to be going into the exact details of it. We're going to be reflecting on how this incident is going to shape journalism moving forward, what it means for the media, what it means for journalists who want to espouse a political opinion publicly, and what it means for matches the day as a whole going forward. Uh, the legacy and relevance of the show itself. Simon, I'm going to start with what happened last Friday when news came out that Gary Lineker had been pulled back from the broadcast. What was your reaction when you found out? I think that I thought um, a couple of days before Friday that um, him being suspended, because that's what it was, he was suspended, stepping back from presentation. He was suspended. He was stepped back. Uh, I thought that was inevitable. Then uh, I thought that maybe they'd seen a way around it, and then suddenly it all blew up again on Friday, and I was quite surprised. Um, and then suddenly this snowball started rolling downhill and getting bigger and bigger and bigger, um, and uh, it just blew up, um, and it was fascinating to watch over Friday and Saturday. I think. One of the reasons that the story suddenly grew and grew, and one of the reasons that then uh, the leadership of the BBC, Tim Davey, felt he had to act, was the fact that the BBC's flagship television news programme, The News at 10, had led on the Lineker story earlier in the week. I think it was the Wednesday. And that suddenly gave the controversy huge more staying power it gave it legs uh, when it was starting to calm down so i'm going to just see i'm seeing the bbc statement which they put out when they suspended him where they said and i quote uh, we have never said that gary should be an opinion free zone or that he can't have views on issues that matter to him but we have said that he should keep well away from taking sides on party political issues or political controversies doesn't that statement seem slightly oxymoronic to you where on one hand they're saying that you can have opinions, but you can't have opinions on issues like politics, you know, like th this, there's something which seems oxymoronic about it. And I want to know what is DC policy officially, right? When it comes to social media, that is it that you can't have an opinion at all? You can't say what you feel or you can say it, but in a very highly censored way. What is the BBC policy on social media? How long have you got? Um, it's, it's been described uh, quite a lot in the past week or so as uh, having grey areas, particularly uh, where freelance is concerned. I think it's less of a grey area than a great big black hole of confusion and imprecision. So the guidelines for news staff, which is what I was, are uh, very firm and and reasonably precise and the guidelines for freelance staff are are kind of on a sliding scale and I'll try and explain that. Um, Gary Lineker is 
very much one of the faces of the BBC. And even though he's a freelance and even though he doesn't work in news, the thought was that people see Gary Lineker tweeting, putting stuff on social media, and they associate him so strongly with the BBC that they feel in some degree that he is speaking for the BBC. Clearly, he was not. He was giving his personal opinion. So let's go back to the guidelines. Um, if you're happy, I will, I, will, I will briefly outline the guidelines as they apply to new staff, which are very, very firm. And the guidelines on news staff are uh, designed to uphold BBC News's impartiality and to protect its impartiality. And it's the simplest way of imagining it is um, to think, and this is how the BBC puts it, all of your social media contributions are, are viewable by the public. So you should never tweet anything that you wouldn't broadcast. And that is, that is reasonably clear guidance that um, nobody would know from my tweets which way I vote. Um, my friends uh, in the pub or uh, in their kitchens, they know how I vote. They know my views. But all of my uh, tweets are uh, steer well away from party politics. There was a there was a um, somebody who worked for me in the in uh, BBC News uh, tweeted uh, a joke at the expense of Nigel Farage in the lead up to the 2015 election. It was a joke. She was seriously wrapped across the knuckles. She wasn't fired, uh, but she was taken off all political coverage. Uh, and has since left the BBC and got a job um, <laughs> quite successfully elsewhere. But it really did damage her career. So with news, it's quite firm. That said, there are things that the BBC is not impartial about. And there are other things that even news staff are allowed to express opinion about. So, for example, the BBC, this will sound crass, but Stick with me. The BBC is in favour of motherhood and against murder. It's in favour of apple pie and it's against anthrax. Things that are so, so simple. It's in favour of peace. It's against war. There are things that, that even news journalists can speak about, can uh, go on social media about. One of the areas that there is almost complete freedom for new staff and everyone else is in the world of sport. Everybody knows that Gary Lineker is a Leicester City fan. Everybody knows that Ian Wright is an Arsenal fan. Everybody knows that Adrian Charles is a West Brom fan. That's fine because it's considered non-controversial and it's okay that people can have a bit of to and fro, a bit of banter, a bit of spatting about sport. But the restrictions for freelancers, Gary Lineker, apply to UK party politics. So his um, uh, the recent controversy was him being critical of the government's 
uh, anti-immigration policy, or immigration policy, should I say. You'll remember that previously, um, Lineker had been on air uh, at the start of the Qatar World Cup, uh, talking quite robustly about the the lack of human rights in Qatar, uh, the treatment of the migrant workers, the, the many, many deaths of migrant workers. This was done as a deliberate act by the BBC. It was kind of addressing the elephant in the room before this World Cup. It got the politics out of the way. Gary Lineker interviewed the Middle East correspondent, Jeremy Bowen, got all that out of the way and said, right, we've said all that. Okay, guys, let's now enjoy the football. You, you know, what, what I think is that for someone like me, right, who is in his mid-20s trying to get into, like, working in the industry, and there are, like, millions like me, I think some of the BBC's edicts just seem so outdated and archaic, right? That in a way that, yes, I understand that you don't want to be putting out things which could be incendiary or, you know, which can just spark unrest of sorts. And I I get that side of things. But isn't it almost a little too draconian, like if you're telling, like you said, someone from sports, that you can have an opinion about everything which happens in your world, but stay there. Right, you don't don't step out, and I just want to think that is there a place right now? I think the BBC, when this whole uh, thing was, they had the reconciliation. They said they're going to be reworking their social media guidelines. Do you think this can change, or do you think that there'll be discussions, things will move forward a bit, and there may be maybe a bit of leeway given, but or do you think that this could be a place which does significantly change how the BBC is run? Well, it has to change because uh, there is such a level of confusion uh, and imprecision uh, about the guidelines, particularly as they uh, impact uh, freelancers. Um, uh, I'm delighted that being an ex-BBC employee, I can't, I'm pretty sure they can't ask me to, to get involved in updating the guidelines because that is a job from hell. Um, all BBC News staff are allowed to have a Twitter account, clearly, and allowed to have Facebook, Instagram, and so on. But in your biography, in your little description on Twitter, it says, these are my views and not necessarily the views of my employer. So you are trying to insulate the BBC from any possible controversy. It's a kind of disclaimer. It doesn't really work. Gary Lineker is a passionate um, uh, humanitarian, and he uh, very much wanted to get involved in what is really a quite controversial UK government policy. And the BBC authorities decided that because he is so well known and occasionally considered the face of the BBC, that he shouldn't be doing that. He's not um, apologised. He's not, uh, he seems not to have um, dramatically cut down uh, the quantity or the vehemence of his tweets. Uh, he's still he's still talking politics. Um, the long-term implications for the BBC are significant because this really was. I've seen it. I've seen it characterised in two ways: uh, Gary Lineker won BBC nil, or 
<laughs> probably more relevantly, Gary Lineker 7, BBC nil. It's a total humiliation for the Director General. Um, he is wounded. Mortally wounded? I don't think so. I think he'll survive it. But he is his his authority has definitely been undermined. And to go back to the original question, are these guidelines horribly old-fashioned? Well, BBC's uh, editorial guidelines have been around for a lot longer than uh, social media. And they have tried to take into account the, the impact of social media, and they haven't done it particularly well. But keeping it as simple as don't put anything on social media that you wouldn't broadcast is a nice, simple rule of thumb for news staff. But uh, freelancers, people not involved in news, have a very different playing field. And there are a number of pretty high-profile stars who have tweeted uh, or put on social media some really incendiary stuff. Uh, you may remember the, the example of Alan Sugar, uh, who, who put a photoshopped picture of Jeremy Corbyn sitting next to Adolf Hitler. Now, he later with, deleted the tweet and apologised. Um, uh, Karen Brady um, uh, tweets uh, pro-conservative views because she's a conservative. Uh, Martin Compson, who is um, best known for being uh, one of the big heroes in uh, the BBC's line of duty drama, is a passionate SNP supporter and before the most recent Scottish Parliament elections said, there is only one way to vote, vote SNP. That is completely political, but there is a kind of distinction made uh, between people who are actors, and so their character is one thing and their real human being life is another thing, and people who appear on the BBC only occasionally, so Alan Sugar only does The Apprentice once a year or whatever it may be, and outside of those periods, he's a bit freer. Um, contrast that with somebody like Lineker, who is on every week and sometimes more often Sports Personality of the Year or live international football and so on and so forth. So they feel that the, the restrictions should be greater on somebody like him, but it's not precise. It's not properly laid down. And it's kind of the BBC hopes that Gary will be a good chap and tone down his tweets for a little while. He ain't going to do that. Do you think that the BBC in some way kind of underestimated the response that and support that Gary Lineker would get, right? Do you think that, like, they suspended him on Friday, right? You have the show taking place the next night. Um... I think just, you know, to find a replacement, did they really think that they'd have someone ready quickly that people would be lining up to take Gary Lineker's seat? And, or do you think that, like, you know, it was amazing that, like, within minutes of that news breaking, you have Ian Wright, Alan Shearer, uh, you have people like Michael Richard saying, I wasn't on B, going to be on BBC uh, Match of the Day tomorrow, but if I was, I wouldn't go. So you have solidarity coming in from everyone around in the media and Twitter, do you think that shook the BBC? Completely. Did did the BBC see it coming? Absolutely not. And I think I'm right in saying that it was very much um, down to 
Ian Wright, who started this avalanche of support. He was the first to come out and say, if Gary's, if Gary's been suspended, I'm not going on Match of the Day tomorrow night. So when he did that, what can Shearer, Alan Shearer, do? Even if he wanted to appear, he couldn't. Micah Richards, Alex Scott, suddenly it snowballed out of all proportion. So uh, Saturday morning's football focus uh, was canned. Uh, final score on the on BBC television in the afternoon was canned. All of the um, commentators, all of the Premier, the BBC's Premier League commentators, down tools on Saturday in support of Lineker. It's interesting, though, that there was a meeting of uh, Tim Davey, um, Charlotte Moore, whose job title I've forgotten, but is quite high up, and the, and the top people in sport in Salford with the sports team. And surprisingly, there was quite a lot of anger directed both at the BBC hierarchy, but also at what were termed highly paid presenters who kind of, not Lineker, he was suspended, but the others kind of withdrew their labour. What does that mean? Went on strike. And that meant that all the other people ended up being forced to do the same. And they were, they were quite angry about how these multi-million pound presenters kind of led the ordinary workers at the BBC in BBC Sport essentially out of the door. They're very pleased they're going to be back this week. Like hypothetically, right? Like if the BBC, if we could go back a week, how do you think would, should the BBC have handled this, right? Like if in retrospect, we could go back and say, you know what, the way you handled it, okay, this issue took place. How would they handle such a crisis from a PR standpoint, from a broadcasting standpoint, from a wider ethical standpoint in some ways. In hindsight is a wonderful thing, but in hindsight, they should have nailed down a stand-in presenter and made sure that Wright and Shearer were prepared to appear before they suspended Lineker. Easy enough to say now. Uh, I'm not sure how I would have behaved differently at the time without the knowledge of everything that's happened since. There's this article which Andrew Smith uh, actually wrote for the Sports Gazette about the entire, there's a bit of hypocrisy about the situation, right? Because on one hand, as journalists, you know, we tell our athletes, we tell the players that, you know, take a political stand, you know, there was so much fear for during the World Cup about England and like, you know, they should have worn the one love armband, you know, that how can't you wear it? Harry Kane is so weak for not doing that. And, you know, we expect so much of, from them to be more than just sports persons. But shouldn't the same thing be applied to sports journalists as well, right? That you are more than just your job. Isn't that what we always want and try to convey to our athletes? But there is always this pushback, which is kind of keeping people censored keeping them to their bubble right like i thought of this and the bbc's response was similar to what happened in the nba a couple of years ago when uh you have someone like lebron james who's coming out and talking about issues relating to black lives matter uh you know police violence and really taking a strong political stance and opinion and 
he was told by this Fox News presenter to, you know, shut up and dribble, right? So isn't that kind of what the BBC is also doing right now, right? That shut up and broadcast, essentially, right? Like, you do this. And I'm just seeing this as some of these measures, if the BBC doesn't update them with time, that you will have the next generation of journalists and, you know, content creators who want to work kind of looking at that and saying, you know what, one day my voice might be stifled. One day I will not have the freedom to say what I want, to express what I want. And I'd rather go to an organization which is more inclusive in its wider culture, uh, so as to speak, and its wider social media policies and this freedom to express yourself, right? I think there is this kind of contrast happening here, I feel, between you have the freedom of press, you have the freedom to criticize the government and just the freedom of self-expression, right? And I think this has just become a convoluted mess of all these three things. And do you think that longer term that we will see, you know, institutional change, you'll have other media organizations looking at this saying, you know what, we need to kind of evaluate our social media policies right now as well, right? What can we let our other broadcasters do, our other freelancers do? Because I think what you said is so important about freelancing, especially, right? That how many media organizations today, given the way the industry is, the landscape is, are hiring people full-time, you know, that everyone today is essentially freelancing for three different places, which will have three different social media policies, right? Um, I, I think there is a wider conversation to be had of, I guess, some of the bigger institutionals in media and how they handle working with freelancers. Because I remember there was an issue with, uh, some time ago, I think it was maybe, I think at the New York Times, I remember this journalist spoke about it, uh, Taylor Lorenz, about how would the New York Times, let's say, allow someone to work full-time for the company, but also perhaps run their own YouTube channel on the side or run their own newsletter on the side where they can say and free to express what they want. Uh, can the two exist? Um, so I don't know. I think there's just a lot of, I feel this also shows this entire incident about how today freelancer, the role of a freelancer uh, and kind of the responsibilities put on him, that still remains quite tenuous. You're right. Um, there's there's so much in what you said just then, Shubi. Um, go back to uh, Harry Kane uh, and not wearing the rainbow armband. Uh, and yet Alex Scott uh, did wear one uh, whilst broadcasting. Key difference is that this was a political point that was not concerning domestic UK politics. Uh, there are, of course, um, supporters of uh, the current regime in Qatar. Um, there are good things about the current regime in Qatar, but there are bad things too. And I think it was accepted that uh, human rights attitudes towards um, uh, LGBT, LGBTQT uh, are not good, are not liberal uh, in Qatar. But bring you back to Lineker, he got involved in a controversy that divides the UK political scene. Um, I don't know this, 
I wish I did know for sure. But one wonders if any uh, complaint was made directly to the BBC from a senior level in government or the Conservative Party about those Lineker tweets. We know that ministers publicly in Parliament criticised him. So you can you can wonder aloud whether there was a quiet phone call from Number 10 uh, or Conservative Central Office to somebody high up in the BBC. And that uh, makes uh, a newsman's uh, hackles rise because, you know, that's political pressure. BBC News is used to getting political pressure. Um, Alistair Campbell and their, uh, for Labour and then after him, um, Craig Oliver for the Conservatives, used to know the telephone numbers of the individual VT video editing suites so they could get straight to the person who was making the story, not bother about going through the boss class and have a go at them. Uh, So news is used to um, resisting that pressure. But if pressure comes from government sources regarding, say, the Lineker tweets, as as a former employee and as a former newsman, I would hope that those pressures were politely but firmly rebuffed. You talked about freelancers. Um, yes, uh, it is the case that more and more journalists, um, particularly young ones, are having to have a portfolio career. I think I disagree with you. There are uh, a number of organisations that are still uh, uh, recruiting permanent or long-term contract staff, but it is tougher Um, And there's an argument that uh, the BBC's uh, social media policies have to be firmer, um, more restrictive than those of other organisations, simply because of the fact that the BBC is funded by a tax on everybody who owns a television. And it's the funding of the BBC that, that puts the onus on the BBC to show itself as squeaky clean, not supporting one side or the other in domestic political debate. Just the last point on this before we kind of move away to just a wider discussion about the BBC's, the role it plays in the UK and even match of the day and what it means to, you know, the sporting community. Um, I think when you said, right, when it comes to freelancers that, I think, yes, there is obviously a market for, you know, like permanent roles and permanent positions. But do you like, I just think that, you know, as a freelancer, if I, let's say I'm trying to, if you try to work for organization X, but if you reach out to them and if they go through, let's say someone's social media activity, and if they find something on their social media activity, which doesn't align with them politically, right? So tomorrow I might want to write about, Arsenal going to win the league for newspaper X, but maybe my political opinions don't exactly align with the political newspapers. Do you think that would automatically just be like, no, you can't write for us because of this. We don't want to seem like we are espousing, you know, these opinions. I think this could end up happening more. Yes, you absolutely should be able to have the freedom to express your political views, even on party political matters, I think, I think, uh, if you are being uh, employed simply to write about football and Arsenal potentially winning the league. 
If your politics comes into that article, it's a different matter. But, uh, I mean, 30 years ago, people were, a, were, were employed and employers did not go back through their, um, the trawl through their social media timelines. It happens now. But I think there's a huge difference between uh, Shuby, who wants to write for Newspaper X about Arsenal, having political views in the public domain. Anybody can look up your tweets. There's a difference between that and somebody who has tweeted in the past about, for example, their support for the Conservatives and their their criticism of Labour becoming say, a political correspondent, when they're going to be reporting on politics the whole time. There's a huge difference between... The, I, I, I guess the, the, the restrictions are tightest on news people and within that even tighter on political correspondents, people who cover politics day in, day out. They should then loosen as you go to sport, cooking programmes, um, uh, natural history programs or, or nature programs. You know, David Attenborough, um, he's political. Nobody seems to object to him uh, saying it's it's quite urgent. We've got to do something to save the planet. But that seems to be a non-party political issue. So Attenborough is allowed to say, do something, we've got to save the planet. He's not allowed to say, and I think he's intelligent enough not to say, the policies of this government are not helping us save the planet. Uh, I don't know if you've read the, that Jonathan Liu had this great article in The Guardian uh, about this entire BBC Linux issue, and there's this great like line he had there about this circular absurdity, he called it, of BBC journalists interviewing BBC executives on BBC policy, you know, to kind of just explain this wider point of what what is the BBC's role today in the UK in the media? Like, why is it? I don't know. Like, for me, from someone who is not from the UK, I always see BBC as much as a media organization, as much as I kind of see it as a, just an institution. You know, uh, something which is in one part is an essential core of journalism in this country and the world. But on another lens, also something so much bigger than that. And I think this entire Linica issue has kind of brought this debate back up again, right? That do you, the same thing wouldn't have happened if, like, like Gary Lineker, uh, Gary Neville, sorry, my bad, uh, says, has extremely strong political opinions, is always talking about this on Twitter. But you never see Sky Sports and that becoming a wider issue there, right? That, or how can he say this, or Sky Sports pulling it, but the fact that it's the BBC, I think that, and like you said, right, like that it's being paid for by everyone who pays for a TV license. Uh, I think I think that kind of complicates matters so much more. And there isn't anything like this anywhere else in the world, right? Like a BBC organization of such stature and history. Uh, but how does the BBC continue? Why do you think it is the BBC continues to say so relevant and almost this special treatment in the way it's seen? Well, the BBC uh, claims, and I think it's true, to be the most trusted uh, broadcaster in the world. Uh, I'm immensely proud of having worked for a very long time in BBC News. Um, 
You talked about the absurdity of BBC journalists interviewing BBC senior managers. Um, the, the BBC News likes nothing better than to chew its own arm off. It loves it when there is a controversy involving the BBC and journalists can put senior managers of the BBC on the spot. Um, there was a famous interview a few years ago on the Today programme, uh, which essentially brought to an end uh, the career of one of the BBC's directors general. Uh, he was the shortest, um, he had the shortest period in office uh, because he did an interview on the Today programme and got eaten alive by John Humphreys and resigned, if not the next day, the day after. So the BBC News loves showing that it is fearless and impartial and uh, uh, stops at nothing to get to the truth, particularly on stories involving the BBC. So what is the legacy of the, of the BBC? Well, that's a very, very big question. The licence fee as a funding model is unsustainable. Um, it used to be very, very simple in the days before social media, before streaming, before multi-platform media. It was very, very straightforward. There were a few television channels. And if you owned a television, you had to pay money to the BBC for the privilege of watching the BBC and the commercial channels. Doesn't work anymore. Um, uh, I, don't, I, I don't need one of those uh, big screens in the corner of my living room. I can watch on my computer. I can watch on my phone. So at some stage, somebody is going to have to come up with a different funding model for the BBC. Uh, those who are critical of the BBC say, take uh, everything away from it and leave it doing just the things that the market won't do. Really um, challenging drama, uh, hard-hitting current affairs, and fund it through a subscription. Well, I think that would be the death knell of the BBC because people wouldn't subscribe. Um, I pay my license fee. I pay my Sky subscription. I know which costs me a great deal more per year, and it isn't the BBC. Uh, but something has got to give, uh, and I think a crisis is, is coming for the BBC. I always find it so striking about how Match of the Day, right? A highlights program, which has just highlight clips from the best games of the day with some analysis, still rakes in like sometimes up to 4 million views, you know, at an age where everyone can stream games illegally. YouTube, Instagram Reels, TikTok, that's all there, right? So some people, like the show which airs highlights of games which took place like seven hours prior, six hours prior, on a Saturday night, can still draw in audiences in such shows where it's just a part of the routine, a part of watching the game. I still find that so incredible, incredible, right? Because by all means, this is not supposed to work, right? Everything we've been told today is everything's moving digital, everything's on OTT platforms, right? No one sits and watches, you know, regular scheduled television. But still, the BBC remains one of the longest lasting shows. And it is a part of the sporting experience in some ways, almost. Match of the Day is a BBC institution and it's a British institution. Um, it's often on quite late at night. Uh, and this is why it gets an audience of only, of only sort of two or three million. 
Uh, incidentally, I think that the increase of half a million uh, in viewers when they ran only 20 minutes of highlights without commentary was simply the number of people who were thinking, I wonder what they're going to do on Match of the Day tonight without Lineker. Um, you know that the programme is rebroadcast uh, on a Sunday morning for people who've gone to bed too early on linear television. It's instantly available on iPlayer, gets loads and loads of uh, hits. And that's because it has the advantage of longevity and a history. It was around and was one of the few programmes uh, that showed uh, football action uh, before the onset of Sky, before streaming. So it has this legacy, it has this history. People became used to it. But I think even more important, it's because the quality of the punditry and the analysis is really, really good. Uh, as a Watford fan, um, uh, during our few years in the Premier League, I would watch Match of the Day relatively infrequently because I wouldn't tune in to see my team get beaten. But when, we, when we'd won, I would really, really enjoy watching the coverage of all the games and then the analysis from Shearer and Wright or Micah Hyde or whoever it might, uh, Micah Richards, uh, whoever it might be, because the analysis is really, really good. So it's a, it's a combination of having a real history and a habit formed over many, many years by the British public and also of being a very high quality programme. Part of the reason the match of the day is so popular is because you have the 3pm, uh, like the TV blackouts, mm-hmm. right, for the games. So I, I almost see that if that changes, right, if you kind of say that, you know what, we're going to broadcast games because there's been a lot of pressure on there for that, right? And the crackdown on streaming. Yeah. Um, I think it's... I just wonder that the match of the day's relevancy might suffer if that ruling changes, where I don't need to wait until the end of the day to watch my team and how they've done or, you know, trying to get some finer details about the game itself when I can actually just sit at home and watch the entire 90 minutes live and see for myself. Uh, I think that rule could really impact... Magic. Yes, it could. And and um, uh, Sky, who who uh, have the li- the rights for more live matches than anybody else, um, will broadcast uh, on a Saturday evening on the red button. They will broadcast everybody's game um, in full. So, yes, you can watch. Uh, you can time shift the entire match. But there is still a there is still a demand, I think, for a a highlights program that is that is uh, combined with good punditry, uh, and I think that it's acknowledged that the BBC does have the best pundits. Um, other other channels, uh, not ITV at the moment, but other uh, Sky and BT Sport do do highlights programs, but they don't have a Lineker or a Shearer or a Wright. It's also oh, we're just seeing somewhere how the BBC pays about seventy point five million each year to get the rights to broadcast the Premier League games for its shows, which is quite a substantial number, right? And, it is. Uh, this is like a three-year deal, runs on front till 2025. Uh, do you think there could be a point where the BBC says that 
like like do you think it still makes sense financially so to continue it with is such okay. an important element in the bbc's offering that they will fight tooth and nail to keep it the bbc lost the rights um to uh premier league highlights for a short while Oh, quite a while ago now to ITV, um, and they fought very, very hard to get them back. It's uh, the BBC is losing sports rights um, uh, gradually over the years, but I think it's going to fight very, very hard to retain uh, highlights rights for Premier League matches on a weekend evening. Just trying to look back on this and how significant this moment is for journalism in the UK and just perhaps the wider collective, not just sports journalism, right? That. I feel every once in a while you have moments like this, standoff like these, which really bring change, where someone really takes a stand, right? Gary Lineker, he's a man who has taken in refugees into his own home in the past. So, you know, he's like, he walks the talk, but he talks it too. So, like, I really think that sometimes you need just a very strong sense of resolve and strength to bring about change. It could change right down, which could impact the freelancer who's just trying to get his work out there and make more money all the way until the BBC's wide receives in how it is trying to stay up to date and relevant in today's society. I think there is, uh, there's more impact on the BBC and the way it's run than there is on journalism, uh, as a whole. Um, we wait and see um, in months or maybe even years' time how the BBC's social media guidelines change and impartiality guidelines change. Uh, but I think that the the long-term uh, impact of this uh, saga is going to be greater on the uh, higher reaches of the BBC than it is on journalism in general. So to wrap up, Simon, one of the things we do on Through Another Lens is we have a consumption corner where each week I ask the guests to share something you've been reading or watching or listening to. Uh, so I want to know from you that is there anything you can recommend for our listeners? It doesn't have to be sport related, just perhaps anything in general. Um, I almost hesitate to recommend uh, everything everywhere all at once, uh, but I watched that uh, the other night uh, and... I was bowled over by the creativity and the amount of work and production that went into it. Did I enjoy it? I think the jury's still out on that. I think I think everything, everywhere, all at once is how the BBC had been feeling for the past week or so. Yeah. so. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I, I think that's it um, Simon thank you so much for joining me on Throw Netherlands this was a great chat as always and I hope to have you back on soon again sometime thank you Shubi it's been my pleasure